This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David B. and Cooley, sitting in for Terry Gross. Last month was the golden anniversary of Schoolhouse Rock, the series of animated musical shorts that aired on ABC from 1973 to 1984. If you don't know how many years ago that was, you may not have watched enough Schoolhouse Rock. Like Sesame Street, which had premiered on public television four years earlier, Schoolhouse Rock set out to use catchy music and friendly visuals to teach kids about things, like whether the word thing was a noun or a verb. Each Schoolhouse Rock segment was a three-minute interstitial cartoon inserted between ABC's other shows on Saturday morning. The subject of the first series of cartoons was Multiplication Rock, followed by Grammar Rock, America Rock, Science Rock, Money Rock, and Earth Rock. The songs in those series included a number of informative earworms that educated young viewers in the 1970s and beyond, songs such as I'm Just a Bill and Conjunction Junction. An advertising agency, McCaffrey and McCall, came up with the idea, commissioned a composer to write a song featuring multiplication tables, then took the song and animation storyboards to ABC. At the time, network TV was under increased scrutiny by politicians and watchdog groups, and the head of ABC Children's Programming eagerly made room for Schoolhouse Rock. That young ABC executive, by the way, was Michael Eisner, who later became CEO of the Walt Disney Company, which now owns ABC. Schoolhouse Rock won four Emmys, and some of its songs have persisted in pop culture. Last week, ABC presented a primetime special Schoolhouse Rock 50th Anniversary Sing-Along with guest stars singing new renditions of old favorites. Here's the rapper Neo on that new special singing his version of Verb, That's What's Happening. I get my thing in action To be, to sing, to feel, to live I put my heart in action to go, to get, to give As for I find satisfaction To search, to find, to have, to hold When I use my imagination I think, I plot, I plan, I dream Turning into us creation I make, I write, I dance, I sing When I'm feeling really active Today on Fresh Air, we salute the 50th anniversary of Schoolhouse Rock, that's 5 times 10, by revisiting an interview with Bob Durow, the composer who wrote and sang that original tryout song for Schoolhouse Rock, Three is a Magic Number. Durow was hired immediately as music director for the series and wrote all the songs for the initial short cartoons presented as Multiplication Rock. Here's a taste of one, written and sung by him, about the number five. Now everybody try to find a good hiding place. This old tree is going to be the base. I'm going to close my eyes and hide my face and count to a hundred by fives. Ready? Go. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, 100, ready or not, here I come. Apple, peaches, pumpkin pie, who's not ready, holler I. Ah. Oh, all right, I'll count it again, but you better get hit, kid. Here we go. 
Twenty nickels makes a dollar. I didn't hear anybody holler. Five times twenty is one hundred. Everybody got to be hit. All eyes open. Here I come. Abdurro, who died in 2018 at age 94, had a life and credits far beyond a Saturday morning children's show. At one point in his musical career, he played piano between comedy sets by Lenny Bruce. He recorded a Christmas album with Miles Davis, providing vocals as well as lyrics. He co-wrote with Ben Tucker the much-covered song "Coming Home, Baby," and collaborated with everyone from Hoagy Carmichael and the Fugs to Art Garfunkel and Nellie Mackay. Terry Gross spoke to Bob Duro in 1996 when a roster of artists who grew up singing his songs, including the Lemonheads and Blind Melon, recorded a tribute album called "Schoolhouse Rock Rocks." She asked Bob Duro how the original animated series came about. Well, let's see. I had met、uh, the、uh, advertising people who concocted the idea, and、uh, my partner Ben Tucker, in fact, wanted us to write a little advertising music. He's a bass player, Ben Tucker.、Mm-hmm. So、uh, one day,、uh, this、uh, gentleman from、uh, McCaffrey and McCall Ad Agency said, "We're looking for a guy to put the multiplication tables." To music and Ben Tucker said, "My partner Bob Duro can do anything. He can put music to anything." Well, let's have him up. So I went up to meet the president of the agency, and it was his idea. And his name was David B. McCall of McCaffrey and McCall. He said, "My little boy can, you know,、uh, sing along with Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones, but he can't memorize his multiplication tables." So I had the idea. Why not? Put the multiplication tables to rock music and call it multiplication rock. What do you think? And I said, "Well, yeah, that's pretty interesting." And he said, "Well, but don't write down to the kids." Well, I learned later that、uh, he had invited other Broadway songwriters to do this task, and they came up with a more simple doggerel type of songwriting, writing down, as it were, to children. So when, when he said, "So what do you think? What did you really think?" I thought, "Well, yeah, this、uh, <laughs> this could be, you know, a, a limited idea." <laughs> But when he added, "Don't write down to children," my、uh-huh. the hackles on my neck arose, and I got quite intrigued. And so I agreed to tackle it, and I spent about three weeks before I would let myself write the first song. I thought first, looked in math books. And since I picked my first title, it was called Three Is a Magic Number. I even looked in magic and occult books for the reasons that three might be a magic number. Did you get anything from those books that、I、you did, used、indeed. in the song? What'd you get?、Mm-hmm. Well, that it was one of the magic numbers, and uh, that it was, uh, uh, you know, embodied in certain things like the Trinity, the、uh, the old sayings, the、uh, heart and the brain and the body. Faith, hope, and charity—trinities of sorts. So I got mainly that trinities, and of course I also was an admirer of Buckminster Fuller. So I was thinking of his triangle、uh, concept that makes construction so strong. 
Well, why don't we pause here and listen to your version, the original version of Three is a Magic Number. Now, did, did you sing on this one? Yes. Okay, why don't we hear it? Three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity, you get three as a magic number. The past and the present and the future, faith and hope and charity, the heart and the brain and the body give you three as a magic number. Why don't we hear... um the Blind Melon version of Three is a Magic Number that's included on the new CD, Schoolhouse Rock Rocks. Three, oh, it's the magic number. Yeah, it is. It's the magic number. Somewhere in that ancient mystic trinity, you'll get three. Advertising executives ask you to to set the multiplication tables to music. Had they already known they could broadcast it on ABC TV? No, they were thinking of a phonograph recording and a book. Uh, The idea of television uh, wasn't remotely in their heads. So how did it get on TV? Well, after some time of testing the songs and having the uh, product called Multiplication Rock... uh, They didn't seem to be getting anywhere in the book publishing world, so uh, one of the uh, executives up at McCaffrey and McCall said, you know, one of our clients is ABC Television. I mean, we do their uh, advertising. Uh, Why don't we present it to them? And so Mr. Tom Yoey animated it. They did it at their own expense. It's very expensive to animate a three-minute song. And they presented it as a... uh, and as an animation film to ABC, at which point suddenly we were in that business instead of the book business. Now, what I'd like to do is um, play um, one of my favorites, <laughs> and uh, it's My Hero Zero. So why don't we play your version and then play the new version on the new CDC, Schoolhouse Rock Rocks, and the new version is performed by the Lemonheads. And, um, well, why don't we play them both? Here we go. Oh, Okay. And Bob DeRoe sings the first version, and of course he wrote the song as well. My hero zero, such a funny little hero, but till you came along, we counted on our fingers and toes, now you're here to stay, and nobody really knows how wonderful you are, why we could never reach a star, without you zero, my hero, how wonderful you are. What's so wonderful about a zero? It's nothing, isn't it? Sure, it represents nothing alone. Put place a zero after one. And you've got yourself a ten. See how important that is. When you run out of digits. 
Bob Duro, what do you think of the Lemonheads version of your song, My Hero Zero? Well, I'm, I think it's really quite nice. And, uh, you know, of course, I thought it went the way I went. Uh, I like my version better because uh, I guess it goes with having written the song. Also, that's my daughter uh, doing the uh, second voice on My Hero Zero. She says, Zero? What's so great about a zero? But uh, I love the way the Lemonheads did it and... Uh, the whole idea of this new recording is very exciting to me as a songwriter. Why don't I play Conjunction Junction? Uh, tell me about writing this song. Do you remember? Well, I must say that my pal George Newell, he's a musician as well as an art uh, advertising director. He's one of the executives. George Newell gave me the title. We were starting Grammar Rock and Miss Lynn Ahrens, who's also distinguished herself writing songs for Schoolhouse Rock. She started out the grammar series. I was still busy with multiplication songs. And uh, she did a noun as a person, place, or thing, and that was great. But George Newell one day to me said, why don't you tackle this conjunctions? I said, conjunctions? Yeah, those little words. He said, I got an idea for a title, conjunction, junction. I said, great, I'll take it. So I I went home and, uh, and figured out it was... Sort of a uh, railroad song, hooking up things like the railroad cars. And I made the song, and uh, we went out to Hollywood to record it. And Dave Frischberg had just written his first uh, song for America Rock uh, at the same time, I'm Just a Bill. So we had a super session in L.A. with Jack Sheldon singing those two songs and me conducting the band and Frischberg playing piano. And we had an all-star jazz band in Hollywood playing Conjunction Junction, and I'm just a bill. (laughs) Very exciting. Conjunction Junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction Junction, how's that function? I got three favorite cars that get most of my job done. Conjunction Junction, what's their I got and, button or, they'll get you pretty far. And, that's an additive, like this and that. But, that's sort of the opposite, not this, but that. And then there's or, O-R, when you have a choice like this or that. And, button or, get you pretty far. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up to 
boxcars are making them run right. Milk and honey, bread and butter, peas and rice. Hey, that's nice. Dirty butt, happy digging and scratching, losing your shoe and a button or two. He's poor but honest, sad but true. up two cars to one when you say something like this choice either now or later or no choice neither now nor ever hey that's clever eat this or that the growth in or fat never mind i wouldn't do that i'm fat enough now now do you think most of the people uh who grew up listening to your songs do you think that they have any idea that these weren't written and performed by people in advertising agencies or theme houses, that they were written by, by you, an interesting and eccentric jazz performer, and that the other songs, some of the other songs on here, are sung by interesting and eccentric jazz performers? Yes, well, I'm sure, I'm sure they didn't even think about such things. They grew up and they learned and they watched. They were a captive audience, uh, one of my partners pointed out, George Newell. Because, you know, they were watching Saturday morning cartoons and suddenly there would be this little three-minute film and they got hooked on them and it actually did them some good. And uh, as we went on in our productions, I, I kept bringing in some of my buddies from the jazz world. So it was a kind of a, <laughs> a little bit of a uh, underground movement there. Yeah, well, you brought in you brought in Dave Frischberg, the singer and songwriter and pianist, trumpeter and singer Jack Sheldon, singer Blossom Deary. Yes, Grady Tate, mm-hmm. a drummer who sings, or a singer who drums. Excuse me, Grady, I didn't mean that. <laughs> What's the difference in the kind of tune that you'd write for one of your own jazz songs and for one of the Schoolhouse Rock songs? Well, it's more in the uh, beat than the uh, melody. I might do anything for a Schoolhouse Rock song, but it's, you know, it's more apt to be a pop kind of beat instead of a jazz beat. I will tell you about figure eight. Uh, it was a beautiful little melody. Sounds like a sonata almost. And I used to play it around my house. And and my late wife said, what is that melody? And I said, oh, I was thinking maybe it'd be an eight, a song about eight. And she said, oh, no, it's too good for schoolhouse rock. And I said, yeah, you're right. And I wrote a different one, and they didn't like it. So in a f- bit of desperation, I decided to finish it, and I wrote figure eight. And it starts out with this very placid melody. In the middle, it goes into a rock beat where they multiply by eight. But the uh, outside was very dreamy. In fact, we recorded it with a cellist. Would you sing a few lines of figure eight for us? Figure eight, as double four. Figure four, as half of eight. If you skate, you will be great when you can make A figure eight, that's a circle that turns round upon itself. When when you were first getting started musically, I mean, you were really deep into Charlie Parker and wanted to emulate him. Um, And you didn't sing very much because you were afraid that singing would, would seem corny or too commercial, too showbiz. And so it wasn't until I think you got to Paris in the 50s for a little bit that you actually started singing a lot. Deep down in my heart, I did want to sing, and uh, uh, I, I didn't do it as much because I also wanted to be a bebop piano player, and, and you know, I, didn't, I would never say to one of 
my colleagues, let me sing one. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, uh, there were occasions where the band got a job and the boss would say, does anybody in the band sing? And, you know, they'd say, yeah, the piano players. And, you know, I would do Route 66 or some rhythm tune just to show them that somebody in the band could sing. It was on the Paris job at the Mars Club in Paris that I uh, had full sway and uh, was able to uh, call my own shots. I was the boss. I developed my uh, style or my act sort of there. Bob DeRoe speaking with Terry Gross in 1996. The former musical director for Schoolhouse Rock died in 2018 at age 94. After a break, we listened back to interviews with Dave Frischberg, who wrote the song I'm Just a Bill, and Jack Sheldon, the trumpeter and singer who can be heard on that song, as well as Conjunction Junction. Also, film critic Justin Chang reviews the third movie in the Magic Mike series, Magic Mike's Last Dance. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. Figure eight is double four. Figure four is half of eight. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University, in for Terry Gross. Schoolhouse Rock, the beloved animated music videos with catchy tunes that taught kids about math, grammar, and history, is 50 years old. Today, we're listening back to some of the people who helped write and or perform those songs. One of the classic songs from the series is I'm Just a Bill. It was written by jazz songwriter, pianist, and singer Dave Frischberg, best known for his witty and sophisticated songs about contemporary life, like the song he wrote with Bob DeRoe, titled I'm Hip. Frischberg died in 2021. He visited Terry in the studio in 1995, and she asked him to perform I'm Just a Bill. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's a long, long wait while you're waiting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday. At least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. That was sung by Jack Sheldon in the original recording of that. Listen to this, Terry. A couple of years ago in Portland, a friend of mine was in the hospital. I went to visit him, and I went to his room, and there was like he was sharing a room with somebody else who must have been really sick because there was this big screen. I peeked behind the screen, and this guy was, this other patient was ghastly pale, and he had all kinds of tubes stuck in every orifice. Looked like he was on his way out. So I was talking to my friend, and my friend says, "Well, what have you been doing?" I said, "Well, I'm working for Schoolhouse Rock again." He says, "Oh." uh, He says, gee, that thing you wrote years ago, I'm just a bill, I still hear that. And from behind the screen came the voice of this other patient, and he said, did you write I'm just a bill? And I said, yeah, I said to thin air, you know. And and then from behind the screen, he began to sing it, the dying man singing my song. I'm just a bill. Oh, God, it was more than I can handle. (laughs) How odd, what a strange experience. Very odd, you know, you never know when. I kept saying, you're singing too much, just do it conversationally. <laughs> now, when you started to play piano, what did you play? Boogie Woogie, the blues. I was a b- blues player. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I was deep into Pete Johnson. He was my hero, Pete Johnson from Kansas City and Joe Turner. 
my brother Mort, the guy with the keychain, he used to sing like Joe Turner. Really? Yeah, and so he and I would play uh, uh, the Joe Turner, Pete Johnson, Boogie Woogie records, and we would copy them. I would copy them off the record, and and uh, we would. That's how I began playing the blues. I could play in C, F, and G, the blues. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear you play something solo at the piano. I mean, to play a piano solo. Um, okay. Well, tell us what you, what you want to play and why. Uh, well, you've chosen it. I haven't chosen it. Let me think. Okay. And I'll, while you're thinking, I'll say, I really love your piano playing. So when, when you perform on the show, I always like to get you to play something. Well, you know, uh, I mentioned uh, Jay McShann. I love that Jay McShann band from Kansas City. I can play a couple of uh, things that I remember from the Jay McShann band, which contained Charlie Parker, by the way, that band did. So, uh, Jumpin' Blues, you know. And... Walter Brown sang with Jay McShann. Confessing the Blues. That was the stuff that I used to try to play like. I loved McShann's playing, and I loved Count Basie's playing, and Pete Johnson's playing. I was hooked on the Kansas City jazz musicians. Dave Frischberg visiting Terry Gross in the Fresh Air Studios in 1995. He died in 2021. Coming up, one more musical member of the Schoolhouse Rock family. Trumpeter and singer Jack Sheldon can be heard not only on I'm Just a Bill, but on another favorite schoolhouse song, Conjunction Junction. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. Top to bottom, front to back, and inside and out, every part of you is connected. So the way you care for your health should be too. That's why Teladoc Health provides connected care, bringing together virtual primary care, mental health support, and care for chronic conditions to help you get well and stay well, so you can live healthier ever after. Get started at teledochealth.com slash fresh air. It's the 50th anniversary of the ABC TV Schoolhouse Rock music videos, which taught kids about math, history, and grammar using catchy tunes. Jazz musician Jack Sheldon did the singing on two of the most memorable songs from Schoolhouse Rock, I'm Just a Bill and Conjunction Junction. 
As a big band and recording soloist on trumpet, Jack Sheldon was featured with Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Benny Goodman, Count Basie, and Dizzy Gillespie. His bandmates have included Chet Baker, Art Pepper, and Zoot Sims. His trumpet can be heard on four dozen film soundtracks. Jack Sheldon died in 2021. Terry Gross spoke with him in 1993 when he had just released an album of duets called On My Own, featuring Ross Tompkins on piano. This love of mine goes on and on Though life is empty since you have gone You're always on my mind Though out of sight It's lonely through the day But all the night I cry my heart out It will surely break Since nothing matters Just let it break I ask the sun and the moon The stars that shine What's to become of it This love of mine Jack Sheldon, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks. It's nice to be here. I don't know why I had this image of you, but I always thought of you as somebody who uh, relied a lot on humor uh, in their singing and, and music. And there's something so emotionally naked about some of the songs on your new record that really surprised me. I really love the singing and the playing on it. Is the choice of material or the kind of singing that you're doing a relatively recent development with you the kind well, of I've been trying. i think i'm singing better now i'm studying mm-hmm. singing and oh. um i'm so i just can do it better but i've been doing it all my life and uh it's yeah it's more naked i think uh, more uh, i like that emotionally naked that's good what's well, interesting tell me what you're getting from learning how to sing i mean taking formal lessons well, just real simple stuff, but, uh, you know, to have a lot of foundation, get a lot of air and use your diaphragm, and uh, I notice now when I, um, if I'm having trouble with a note, it's really because I don't have the um, uh, foundation there to, you know, get a lot of air in my stomach and my diaphragm and uh, and to open my mouth wide. You just learn real simple things that you'd think you'd do, but um, you don't really, and then practice the pitch and um, the articulation. It's just... Um, things like the trumpet with the, you know, uh, hitting every note precisely in pitch. And um, it's it's good to take lessons and study like that because then you have, you do what you do and then somebody can criticize you and um, in a nice way. They're real nice to me and they're real um, encouraging. 
Was there another change that happened to you besides taking lessons? Did something happen emotionally that left you more open to this kind of material? Well, I got sober eight years ago, and I don't uh, drink or take drugs or do anything like that, and I think that left me teachable. Before that, I thought I was really cool and I knew everything. So, and I didn't want to take lessons. I thought I was uh, better than the teachers, you know, and I really just didn't know what I was doing. And then I, when I got sober, I... Um, I found out there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know and that um, people didn't use me, not because they didn't like me or anything, because I couldn't um, produce what they wanted. Now I'm trying to get to be able to do anything any composer might want. When you were playing in the 1950s, bop was the thing, and very, yeah. very few of the instrumentalists sang. Did you sing back then, and were you uh, self-conscious about singing at all? Yeah, I was always self-conscious about singing. I, I wanted to sing, but um, it's so personal, singing. And I started singing with Benny Goodman's band, and that was about 1958. And I wrote a song, uh, and Benny let me sing. He was the first band leader that would ever let me sing. Stan Kenton wouldn't let me sing, though, because he always was afraid I would say something too off-color, which I probably would have. Did you have a reputation for doing that? Yes, I, w I worked with Lenny Bruce, and I was trying to kind of emulate him at the time. What kind of work did you do with Lenny Bruce? You were in the band playing, playing uh, at the club or something? Yeah, in Burlesque, I worked with uh, Lenny Bruce. We worked uh, with uh, his wife, Honey, and uh, Joe Maney, and uh, Philly Joe Jones, and Kenny Drew, and Leroy Vinegar. We had quite a real good band there. And we played Burlesque at a place called Duffy's in Los Angeles. And Lenny was the comic, and we did all kind of... Com uh, he would write stuff, and we'd act out. We did The Man with the Golden Arm. and Oh, really? Like, like your own version of that? <laughs> yeah, a burlesque version. Well, that must have been interesting. Yeah, it was, it was funny, I think. I think it ended up where the guy... Um, flush the dope down the toilet, and then Lenny said, there's nothing, there's only one thing to do, is smoke the toilet. <laughs> it doesn't sound so funny now. I, you really had to be there, I guess. <laughs> um, why don't I play uh, another track from your latest album, On My Own? And I thought I'd play some of I Can't Get Started, because it, it kind of shows off everything, your trumpet playing, your singing, and it shows both like the emotionalism of your singing and also the, some of the humor in it, too. Okay, thanks. Settled revolutions in Spain The North Pole I have charted Still I can't get started with you Around the golf course I'm under par And Benny Goodman made I had a house, a show place Now she got that and I got no place And I also can't get started with you <laughs> You're so supreme
That's Jack Sheldon on trumpet and vocals from his new album, On My Own. There's a really interesting documentary about the trumpeter Chet Baker that you were featured in. You were one of the people interviewed about Baker. And I remember you saying that, and I should mention that, that like you, uh, Chet Baker played trumpet and sang. And uh, you, you, were, you were very funny about him. You, you talked a little bit about how frustrating it was that he never, re- you know, you were always in a room rehearsing, <laughs> and practicing, and he never had a practice or anything. He always just had the sound, and he always nope, looked he so did. great. I hear Harry James never had to practice. But I have to practice all the time. Doc Severinsen practices, practices all the time. But, you know, I was singing back there with Chetty when we were little kids, come to think of it. We were both singing, and we'd sing together, and we, were, uh, we grew up together. And um, uh, we would sing. We had a little quartet. We'd go around and play in little bars for $2 or anything we'd get. We just would drive up. The bass player, Hirsch Hamill, had a Pierce Arrow, and we'd have the uh, bass in there and... You know, it was a 12-cylinder old car with a place for a chauffeur and everything. How old were you then? Oh, I was about 14, 15. I was about 15. No, 16, I guess. And how did yeah, you... Because I was in Florida when I was 14. I was 16, and Chetty was about, um, I think, about 18 or 19. How did you meet? I think at a place called the Showtime, which was um, on Sepulveda and Ventura Boulevard, and it was a jam session on Monday nights, and all the guys um, that were on the road would come in there. I got to play with Art Blakey in there, and Stan Kenton, and a bunch of people. Maynard Ferguson would come in there, and Chetty and I would always just sit in. To me, it was, you know, the uh, glittering night of uh, stars of jazz, and I was just thrilled to be there. Now, how did you get to the West Coast from Florida, where you grew up? Well, my aunt came out here first from Florida, and she was a swimming teacher. Crystal Scarborough was her name, and she taught babies how to swim. And then uh, we moved out here, and my mother started teaching swimming, and I taught swimming, too. And uh, we got a pool on Hollywood Boulevard. My mother taught all the movie stars' kids how to swim. Uh, Paul Newman and uh, Lee Remick, all... Whole, every, every movie star at the time, Nat Cole. I taught uh, Natalie and Kelly Cole how to swim. Really? <laughs> and uh used to have Kelly uh, in the pool with me, and Nat Cole would be walking around the pool uh, smoking cigarettes. He was a chain smoker. And I'd have Kelly sing, uh, When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day. You know, Bing Crosby's theme song, and Nat would go, ha, ha, ha. Slightly humorous. But I taught a lot of kids. I caught, taught all of Paul Newman's kids. In fact, one of his daughters used to bite me on the ankle when I'd be talking to Joanne Woodward. How old were you when you started working professionally when, when, and when you started playing with other bands? I was 12 in Jacksonville, Florida. And um, I, I just started playing the trumpet, and I started working with Gene Brandt's band at the uh, Washington Hotel there. Everybody was gone in the war. And... Um, so I started working, and then I came to California and went to started college at 16. I started to go to uh, USC, and then I switched over to City College because they had such a good music department. Uh, so I went to college there for a couple of years, and then I joined the Air Force, and then I got out of the Air Force, and I worked a lot with Mexican bands. I worked at Million Dollar Theater in downtown Los Angeles, all Mexican shows. And... Um, then I went in the, uh, I joined Stan Kenton and uh, went around, went to New York and played at Birdland with Stan Kenton. And Chet Baker was already there in New York and he was already acting real wild. 
he got he played opposite Miles Davis, and this threw him off. Before he went to New York, he was just he would smoke grass sometimes, but then he got all involved in heroin and everything else, and uh, in New York, and then. Uh, you know, he got really messed up then, and he never really was the same after that because um, he was a great kid, and then he got too wild. But he always was a great genius of a trumpet player. Jack Sheldon, thank you very much for talking with us. Well, thank you. I'm so flattered you had me on. It's a thrill. I love your show, and it's a great show, and thank you very much. Musician Jack Sheldon, speaking to Terry Gross in 1993. He died in 2021. That concludes our three-interview salute to Schoolhouse Rock on its golden anniversary. And as fans of that show are well aware, three is a magic number. Coming up, film critic Justin Chang reviews the latest movie in the Magic Mike series, Magic Mike's Last Dance. This is Fresh Air. It's been more than a decade since Channing Tatum first played a Florida stripper in the movie Magic Mike, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Now, there's a third movie in the series titled Magic Mike's Last Dance. It brings Mike to London and features Salma Hayek-Pinot as his new boss and love interest. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. Given how little sex or sensuality there is in mainstream American cinema these days, it's no surprise that the Magic Mike movies have been so popular. The first Magic Mike, directed by Steven Soderbergh in 2012, was an irresistible showcase for Channing Tatum and his thong-and-dance routine, though it was also a sharp, realistic portrait of cash-strapped workers getting by in post-recession Florida. Three years later, the director Gregory Jacobs leaned into the erotic spectacle of it all with the exuberant Magic Mike XXL, placing women's desires front and center in a way that made even the first movie look staid. Magic Mike's Last Dance which Soderbergh directed from a script by Reed Carolyn, isn't nearly as sexy or as deliriously entertaining as its predecessors, or, I assume, as the Magic Mike live shows that have sprung up in recent years. Still, the new movie does begin with one doozy of a seduction. Mike, his stripping days long behind him, is now working part-time as a bartender in Miami. One evening, he finds himself mixing a drink for a wealthy London-based socialite named Maxandra Mendoza, played with a nice mix of vulnerability and steel by Sama Hayek Pinot. Max is going through a very messy divorce, and she could use a little distraction. When she finds out, from a mutual acquaintance named Kim, what Mike used to do for a living, she asks how much it would cost for him to give her a private dance. It's nice to meet you. So... Let's say, if you were to do this just like one last time, mm -hmm. how much would something like that go for? How much would something like that go for? Uh, 60000 maybe? $60,000? Yeah, $60,000. Yeah, $60. Let's call it 60. What the f*** are you doing? She said it was a silly dance. Who said that? Kim, Kim said that? It was silly? Yeah, she said... It, it was a silly dance, but that it would get my mind off of things. And if she's right, I'm willing to pay six. What? You're, you're serious right now? You're going to pay me $6,000 to give you a dance? Yeah, but no happy endings, huh? And so Mike gives her what she asks for, starting with a lap dance 
and building to what looks like an elaborate home gymnastics routine. There's a funny bit beforehand where he tests out the furniture to make sure it can support the weight of his acrobatics. The dance scene is gorgeous and hypnotic, and it whets your appetite for more. But then the movie takes a surprising turn. Max, impressed by the passion and artistry of Mike's dancing, asks him to come back to London with her. There, he'll take over as director of a play at the theater that she now owns as part of her separation agreement. The play is a dreary-looking period drama called Isabel Ascendant, and Max thinks it needs a massive contemporary overhaul, with more heat and more urgency, and yes, an ensemble of male strippers. And so she and Mike begin recruiting the best and hottest dancers they can find, none of whom have ever stripped in public before, though they're game enough to give it a try. Magic Mike's Last Dance has an infectious let's-put-on-a-show energy, plus some wry family drama, courtesy of Jamelia George as Max's sarcastic teenage daughter. Meanwhile, as Max's divorce proceedings continue, her relationship with Mike becomes its own complication. The possibility of long-term romance didn't really factor into the first two Magic Mike movies, which were all about fleeting transactional encounters. I guess that makes Magic Mike's Last Dance the more mature, thoughtful entertainment, and I'm not sure that's entirely a good thing. Don't get me wrong, Tatum and Hayek Pinot have an on-screen chemistry that's both romantic and collaborative. Their characters' creative back-and-forth becomes a vision of gender parody in action. Max wants to thrill her play's female audience, but she needs Mike's smarts and expertise to do it. Still, there's something a little too dutiful, and even dull, about the way the character's mutual attraction ultimately plays out. Soderbergh has always liked to subvert expectations, and here he seems bent on short-circuiting a lot of the pleasures we've come to expect from the Magic Mike movies. The dancing and the stripping feel tamer this time around. We don't really get to know the dancers as characters, and I missed the raunchy male camaraderie of Mike's old stripper buddies, played by actors like Matt Bomer and Joe Manganiello, who appear in just one brief scene. At the same time, there's something fitting about how muted and even melancholy this movie feels. As the title suggests, Magic Mike's Last Dance is about a guy bidding farewell to his calling and passing the baton to the next generation. Stripping was never his dream job, but it was good for him while it lasted, and also for us. Justin Chang is film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed Magic Mike's Last Dance. What do you get when you fall in love? A guy with a pin to burst your bubble. On Monday's show, we remember composer and arranger Burt Backrack, who died Wednesday at the age of 94. His collaborations with lyricist Hal David during the 1960s included many hits sung by Dionne Warwick, including Anyone Who Had a Heart, Walk On By, and I Say a Little Prayer. They also wrote The Look of Love, This Guy's in Love With You, and many other songs. We'll listen to our interviews with Backrack and David, and with Backrack and Elvis Costello, who also collaborated with him. I hope you can join us. For Terry Gross, I'm David Bean Cooley. Yeah.